Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Robert Kelly. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I'm so glad that you have uh, joined us for our uh, new series, It's Complicated. And for all of our guests, we're super excited to have you here and so glad, uh, looking forward to getting a, uh, getting a kind of a chance to get to know you better and uh, help you uh, kind of take your next step in your spiritual journey. So we're studying this series, it's called It's Complicated. We're going to be studying God's plan for relationships for the next seven weeks. You could ask, why would we do that? Well, it's because humanity isn't meant to be alone. We're not meant to be alone. I recently had come across some depressing research on solitary confinement. And uh, I kind of went, put me down this little rabbit hole and I started researching and finding out, trying to find other articles. And it, it ends up that there are very few experiments done on solitude. Uh, because, of course, they're viewed as unethical. And so there's not many, you know, you can't really do these experiments on people unless you were around in the 50s, because apparently it was like the wild, wild west back then. So in the 50s, there was a study that researchers at McGill University did. They paid a group of male college graduate students to stay in a small room, and uh, they were isolated. It was a sensory deprivation experiment, so they had uh, headphones on, and they had uh, things over their eyeglasses on. And uh, the goal was to kind of watch them and study them for about six or seven weeks. And not one of the participants cleared one week. They couldn't actually complete the experiment. They said that after, within a week's time, that nearly every student lost the ability to think clearly about anything for any length of time. In fact, not only were they not thinking clearly, a whole bunch of them were starting to report types of hallucinations. Like one guy, he said the only thing he could see was dogs. You imagine that? Which actually, I guess, wouldn't be too bad. You know, because you're like, you know, if you're going to have to hallucinate, I would say seeing dogs is not ba bad because it could have been cats. <laughs> and that could be problematic. That could be problematic. In another study, rats were isolated in empty cages, and they found out that the rats get stressed, aggressive, and sick. And even over time, their brain cells, the blood flow, their nervous system becomes compromised. Scientists in that study said that they believe this happens to humans in isolation as well. Michael Zygmunt, a neuroscientist at the University of Pittsburgh, said that our brains cannot function without social interaction. We require them as much as air and water. Now, I'm not saying we are rats. That would not be a way to win friends and influence people, especially after having insulted all the cat lovers. But, 
We are certainly not less than rats. The social needs that we have are clear. Researchers have been able to study the effect of isolation on those that choose uh, to be isolated. Now, a Finnish study, the BBC that uh, reported on, they said that people who live alone increase their risk of depression by up to 80% compared with people who are living in families. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who's living alone is isolated because you could actually be living alone and have a very robust social life. But for those that are genuinely isolated, there are significant negative effects. In fact, uh, another study the Smithsonian reported on, had a, it was a really fascinating study. They found out that if you are isolated, that you actually will die sooner than people who are not isolated. But the particularly, which we would really sort, sort of expect by now, but the interesting part of it was they also gauged those people who reported that they were lonely. And they found that those who reported that they were lonely did not die any sooner than the people who didn't report it as long as they were not isolated. So you could be isolated and you can experience being lonely. That is what's so dangerous. But even if you're lonely, you're feeling lonely, if you're still with people, you still get the benefits of, of having at least that part of your life satisfying. Pretty fascinating. Now, of course, God said all of this at the very beginning of the Bible when he told us that it isn't good for man to be alone. It took us, you know, millions of dollars and highly trained doctors and sophisticated research methods to, do the, to come up with the same thing, but that's just how things run now. See, we want and we even need people in order to survive. We're wired to be with people. Now, which this wouldn't be such a problem if relationships weren't so difficult. That's the real challenge, right? So many of our relationships are filled with heartache and dysfunction. We need them, but they often hurt because relationships are complicated. They're hard. You know, I mean, am I the only one that has difficult relationships? I mean, it, Aren't there others here? Are there others that would agree with that? In the old days, we would say, can I get an amen to all the people? That would be like a, it's like a total preacher thing. Like, you know, then I would know that I'm not the only one with complicated relationships and overcome my insecurities. This complication is why we are so often unhappy in our relationships. Now, maybe for you, it's, it's a lousy boss, or maybe you've got some like backbiting coworkers or some gossipy neighbors a friend of mine recently told me a story. He said he was out having a political conversation with one of his neighbors, and, you know, it was, it was somewhat intense, and they went inside. They'd been neighbors for a long, long time. He went inside, he found out that he was unfriended on Facebook because <laughs> they, you know, they had a little conversation out here. He was unfriended. I'm like, oh, God, that's the new world we live in. Or maybe for you, it's a disappointment with your employees, or maybe you've got some sort of a curmudgeon business partner that's just driving you crazy. There are busted up marriages. Or maybe you're in a good marriage that it's good overall, but right now you're facing a tough season that's fueled by quite a few years of neglect. You have kids that are growing up in broken homes and we have arguments and, and court battles over visitation rights. Even if your family is still together, 
Raising kids is hard. It's hard. Who here is raising teenagers? Right? Okay. So you know it's hard. And teenagers, I know we have some teens over here. Listen to the teens. I am sorry. I apologize on behalf of all of the parents. We really do love you guys, and we're trying as hard as we can. We just actually don't know what we're doing. Like, you didn't come with a manual, and even though it doesn't feel like it, like, we really do love you guys, and we really, like, it's true, but, like, we're just not, we're not good at it. And I don't even understand why, but they're hard. These relationships are difficult. Maybe you're discouraged by just lackluster friendships or the whole, like, you know, modern struggle with dating. I mean, let's not even get started on the dating situation nowadays. You've got commitment phobes. It's a hookup culture. There's this... What, catfishing? What in the world? Like, I don't even understand what has been going on. When Cheryl and I started dating, we did not have cell phones. Just think that through. Not smartphones. We didn't have a cell phone. You still had a phone in your home with a wire attached to it when we started dating, which makes me feel old, but it wasn't actually that long ago. (laughs) But this is what's happened. All of these things have changed so fast. And even in the best of our relationships, There are still difficult times, seasons, there are challenges that can push us to the breaking point. And it might lead a person to say, it's complicated. It's complicated. Fortunately, God's word gives us all sorts of practical wisdom. It'll it'll give us a leg up when it comes to relationships. We have all of these wise sayings that will help us navigate some of these relational challenges. In fact, even if you are not a Christian, which I know there's a whole group of folks here this morning, you're not yet followers of Christ and you're just checking things out and you're not really sure about the whole Christian faith thing. I understand that and we're delighted that you are here. But I got to tell you, even if that is where you're at today, if you simply do what God's word says, even if you don't really buy the whole Christian thing, if you just do what God's word says, the scriptures will be proven effective in your relationships. They will. It's just that good. Now, it might be, it's going to be harder for you because you're not going to have the power of the Holy Spirit working in your relationships and all that kind of stuff. But the wisdom of the scriptures is so profound and the truth of it is so clear that your relationships will get better. They simply will. Because God wants us to have amazing, life-giving relationships, whether it be with your spouse or your fiancé or kids or with your parents, friends or coworkers or neighbors, or even if it's just your first date, God wants you to have these great, joy-filled relationships. Open up, if you wouldn't, a Bible to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. And what we're going to see as we kind of work our way through some of these Proverbs, we're going to see that God desires us to have these great, joy-filled relationships. But the bad relationships, they steal our happiness. They steal our happiness. For instance, consider a couple of these Proverbs. In 15.13, it says, A happy heart makes the face cheerful, but heartache crushes the spirit. Or 
very much like it. A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. This is, these, these two proverbs that I've got on the screen here for you, a happy heart makes the face cheerful. You get that? A cheerful heart is good medicine. But then it talks about the other side of it, a crushed heartache that, that a heartache will crush your spirit and a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Think about in your own life, where have you had some of the worst heartaches? And when have you experienced your spirit being crushed? I mean, isn't it often in relationships that are struggling? That's when we most often feel these things. And the degree to which you follow God's wisdom in relationships is the degree to which we will contribute to the health and the vitality of those relationships. And the degree to which we neglect God's word. We will exacerbate heartache, adding to the dysfunction. That's because godly relationship wisdom isn't always intuitive. Another Proverbs in 14.12, it says, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. And I know that a lot of us, we are doing the things that we think are right. We're trying real hard, but it's simply doesn't work out for us. It's not our intention. We're not trying to make these things go screwy. See, there's a way that seems right to us, but it isn't God's way. And it's not, when it's not his way, it will inevitably go bad. If you want better relationships and if you want them to be a bit less complicated and a lot more rewarding, we've got to do relationships God's way. And herein is the irony in all of this. You see, human relationships, right? We have these human relationships, but, and God desires us to be joy-filled and happy. However, when we pursue our relationships as our ultimate end, our ultimate goal, we end up finding only heartache and misery. And how does that even work out? It's because human relationships can't satisfy our deepest longings. They can't. Human relationships aren't supposed to be the source of our ultimate happiness. I know they're supposed to bring us joy, and it's how God designed it to be, but they're not meant to, bring, to give us our ultimate happiness. We were meant to have God at the center of our lives, not other people. Take a look at that Proverbs 2 that I had you open up to, starting in verse 1. He says, my son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. I mean, isn't that what we want? We want success in all of our relationships. And the scriptures are saying you can have success. In fact, if you pursue God's wisdom, he will grant you success. But there's something that comes between those, which is verse 5. It's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. And that's the key. That's actually the, the, the very foundation of everything that we have to understand when it comes to relationships. 
Now, when we talk about fear, of course, for us, it, it has this idea, the fear of the Lord is like some guys cowering in the corner and they're shaking in their boots. And, and you know, that's when we think about fear, you know, like this kind of dread thing. But it's not the way the Jewish people understood the fear of the Lord. Often, the fear of the Lord and loving God were used interchangeably. How could you use fear and love in the same sentence? To us, it, it doesn't, you know, in the same sense, it doesn't seem like it works that way. And one of the best ways I, I know to understand this is to think in terms of our phobias, our fears, right? And so let's say that you have like an irrational fear of cats, all right? And so whenever you're, you go to a friend's house and all of a sudden a cat walks into the room, and what happens? Everything in your world becomes centered around that cat. You can't even focus on your conversation. You can't think of anything but that cat because, you know, it's a, it's a cat and you have a phobia about cats. And so it's all you can think about. It's all you can. Well, that's, that's a fear that you have. Now, let's say instead a dog came in the room and, and not based in fear, but just you just can't get enough of dogs. You just love them so much. And every time they walk in, you forget the people in the room and you go right to the dog. Like we have people in our house, they're like, oh, how you doing? They see our dog, Pepper, and they can run over. They're like, hi, oh, look at the dog. Because, you know, they're, they're fixated on a dog. Now, that's not a fear, but it's a full encompassing of their attention, right? And see, so in the same way, you can have a phobia. You can also just be fixated on something. And those things can grab your attention no matter what else is happening around you. When the Hebrews spoke about the fear of the Lord, that's why they can use it interchangeably with love because it's talking about standing before this awesome God and just being enveloped in him. And no matter where you look and no matter what you think, you can't see anything outside the, the realm of God. It's all become, it becomes a type of fear, but it becomes more of a type of fixation. It becomes a type of obsession even, if we can use that in its most positive way, that nothing else will matter to you. Everything becomes secondary to the fear of the Lord. He becomes so dominant and so important in your life. See, we can't put any relationship any earthly human relationship at the center of our happiness because everyone will fail you. Which I know is not a great way to kick off a series on relationships. So I sort of understand the, the, uh, the, how weird that really is. But you know, it, you know, hey everyone, hey, I'm so glad you came out to church today. Uh, by the way, you're gonna be miserably disappointed by everyone around you for all of life. Um, welcome to Beacon. Uh, I mean, this is a sad truth, but it is a truth nonetheless. There has never been a person who did not disappoint others. Never. It's never happened, and of course it won't. Now, sometimes, of course, people disappoint us because they're sinners. They do things that they shouldn't be doing, and they hurt us in ways that they shouldn't hurt us. We've all experienced that. But sometimes people disappoint us because we're sinners. They disappoint us because they can't meet our needs. Our expectations are too high or are too unreasonable or because we are too self-centered. You see, sometimes it's because we're the sinner. So turn to the person next to you and say, I am going to disappoint you. Go ahead, just get it out there. I'm going to disappoint you. Now you can turn to the person on your other side. Say, you are going to disappoint me. 
go, turn to the person next. You say, you are going to disappoint me. Self-awareness is important. This happens. It's a reality. And, but we don't like this reality because we want people to make us happy. In fact, we demand it. You have to make me happy. It's what you're supposed to do. But when we base our happiness on a person, that person has become an idol to us. And whenever we make the pursuit of a relationship an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol to us. So you see the dilemma. We want happiness. God wants it for us too. We know that relationships make us happy because that's actually how God designed the thing to work. So we pursue those relationships with gusto. But when we force those relationships to become our ultimate happiness, it taints them. The very pursuit of them and the clinging to them that we do makes them bitter to our souls. So you can imagine the dad. He's got, you know, high hopes, you know, for his kid. That's what he wants, high hopes for him. And he puts all of his emotional energy into the picture of success that he has for his son. And in a sense, you could think of the father's happiness now being tied to the son's achievement. But the son, he doesn't quite measure up to the dad's hopes and dreams. Imagine the kind of pressure that the son will feel knowing how he disappoints his father. The son has become an idol. How many young girls will give more of themselves than they wanted to to some guy or they continue to date the wrong guy because they can't bear the thought of losing the relationship. So they'll do whatever it means, whatever they have to. We will even disobey God to keep the guy. The guy's become an idol. You might think of the wandering husband. He isn't getting what he, he thinks he deserves out of his marriage. You know, the companionship, it's strained and the, the conversation has gone cold and the sex is nearly non-existent and all of a sudden, the old flame on Facebook starts looking more and more attractive. Or the coworker who respects me as a man starts getting more and more of your attention. You see, your longing for fulfillment has become an idol. There are people who will put everything into their sexual identity. And rather than trust God with our identity, we rebel against him and we say, you know what, I'm not going to follow a God who tells me how to live. No one gets to tell me how to live. Your self-identity has become an idol. Maybe you've been hurt in the past. Maybe someone has toyed with your heart. So now, all you want is non-commitment relationships. That's it. Or no relationships at all. Because you refuse to let yourself be hurt. Hasn't the fear of being hurt become an idol in the same way 
that obsessing over a relationship can be an idol? Tim Keller, he says, if you are too afraid of love or too enamored by it, it has assumed godlike power, distorting your perceptions and your life. You can think of friendships that don't, they can't bear up under the strain of too many expectations or demands or kids who say, I just, I have to be with that particular group of kids. Otherwise, I don't feel worth, I'm I'm not worth anything. We want our relationships to do more, to give us more, to make us complete in a way that they were never designed to. We have to pursue God first and foremost. He has to be our primary relationship. C.S. Lewis, in a long quote, I'm just going to ask you to stick with me on this quote, but it captures what I'm trying to say here. He says, most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and the scenery may have been excellent, and it may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. See, when we have this unfilled longing, There's only a handful of ways that we can actually deal with that. Imagine for a moment, you've got this longing in your heart. You want something and you're not getting it. So what do you do? Well, you can blame the situation. You can look at the person that is disappointing you and say, well, it's your fault. I have an unmet longing. It must be your fault. That results in relationship strife. Or if that's not your route, you could do something else. You could blame yourself. You could say, you know what? Obviously, I'm not being fulfilled because it's because of me. I'm what's wrong. I'm what's broken. And if you go down that road, it ends in self-loathing and shame. And that's a disaster for our relationships. You could also just blame the world, right? You can just say, That's just the way the world is. It's a terrible, crappy world, and that's it. Which, of course, leads to a hardness of heart, a cynicism, an emptiness, which is relational suicide. See, none of these are good options. And C.S. Lewis says, or you can reorient yourself toward God. And as C.S. Lewis puts it, he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. See, there is another relationship that is designed to carry that weight. We've got to put God first and foremost. 
This is the only way. See, God deserves to be at the center of your affections. He has more than earned that right. You see, he is always faithful. He is always good. We see that at the cross. I mean, what is the story of the cross other than the fact that Jesus Christ, he died on your behalf. He died so that we could be restored in our relationship to the Father. What we deserved, he took on himself. I mean, who loves you like that? Who would exchange his life for yours? He deserves to be at the center of our affection. Jesus, who had the perfect relationship with the Father, allowed it to be disrupted on the cross such that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The unforsaken one became forsaken so that those of us who were truly forsaken because of our sin and our rebellion would no longer have to be forsaken. He exchanged that for us so that we would never have to experience it. He suffered isolation so that we would never have to be isolated from the Father. He deserves our affection. And then and only then can we apply God's wisdom in all of our relationships the way it was meant to be. See, once you decide to put God first and foremost, then you get to open yourself up to, in all of your relationships. You get to open yourself up to the wisdom that's found in his word. That's why when we were back in Psalm 2, he was saying, you can pursue all of these things. And I can't tell you how many times over the years in my progress in faith, I can't tell you how many times my behavior has changed because I have submitted myself to God's word. I could not even begin to count the times where my attitudes have shifted where I feel this way and I'm thinking this thing and I'm going to go after it in this way. And then because of God's word and because of the community of faith that something has shifted in me, something has changed and it has become just a little bit more precious and a little bit more holy. How often when I'm just stuck in my ways and I'm being stubborn and I'm being hard-hearted and I'm just digging in my heels and something will happen and God's word will impact me in a certain way and a verse will come back to my memory that I've been working on or a word from a Christian friend will just, will just drop into my heart in some deep way and where there was, was anger and frustration and where I was digging in my heels, suddenly I start to see the beginning of an apology being generated something that I desperately need to get out eventually. How often that I've been hurt and my sense of justice will build up in me and I just, what has to happen now is you need to be punished because you've hurt me. That's how I feel, but I'm not going to get mad even, I'm just going to get even because that's what you deserve and you might really deserve it. Then somewhere along the way as I submit myself to God's word, eventually through his power and through the spirit, forgiveness starts to, to creep in and suddenly I'm reminded that this is the way I am with God and God's forgiveness poured out on me. He gave me forgiveness because of Christ and the cross and suddenly forgiveness starts to get a foothold again in my soul. 
Now, in this series, we're going to recognize that there are all sorts of legitimate things that we will need from relationships. There's emotional connection, and there's freedom, and there's forgiveness, and acceptance, and you know, correction, and respect, and time, and all of these things. These are all legitimate things we're going to be looking at over the next, uh, the, the next six weeks as we try to figure more and more of, of this out. In fact, that's what the whole series is going to try and help us do, is, is develop these kinds of skills. We're going to be, you know, we're going to talk about the power of the tongue, and we're going to be talking about pride in relationships, and sexual purity, and envy, and jealousy, and how to replace anger with patience, and kind of even how to fight fair and deal with conflict. We're going to be looking at all these things over the, the next, uh, over this series. But all of it is going to be rooted and based on whether or not we're going to put God first and foremost. Put him at the center and submit ourselves to his word and let that word do the work it was meant to do. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And they're going to be leading us in a couple of songs as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. And so these songs are designed to help us put God at the center of our affections. They're designed to help us look to the Lord's table so that we can begin to, to remember why it is that God deserves to be at the center of our affections. We're hoping, we're, we're praying that even as a result of this time together, the prayers and the songs and the Lord's Supper, we're praying that this would be a rich, rich time for each and every one of us to grow in our love for God. So let me just pray for that as, we, as they get ready. Lord, I'm asking that you would do this for each person here, that you would do it for me and for my family here, that you would do it for each of our, our friends who are sitting here, Lord, who are, who are listening and wondering, what, how is it that we can come to know you and love you more fully and completely? And what we're asking, Lord, is that you would meet us here, even in these moments. I pray, Lord, that we would sing with all of our hearts, that we would worship you, that we would let our minds drift toward you we would come to know you and love you more fully and completely, submitting ourselves to you and putting you at the center of our affections. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.